Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. As the weather tries its hardest to slide into spring, we thought that it would be a good time to talk about fertility. See the connection I made there, EpiPen? So today on the show, we have two experts giving us a peek into their professional worlds of procreation. First up, we will be speaking with Associate Professor Kirsten Palmer, who is an obstetrics specialist at Monash Health. Kirsten heads up the the maternal fetal medicine team, as well as doing research into maternal and perinatal medicine at a nearby university. Guess which one? She has a particular interest in disorders of placentation. Hmm, Placentation which she will explain, as well as having state and national roles on the Committee for Interdisciplinary Maternal Perinatal Australasian Collaborative Trials Network, IMPACT, doctors and their acronyms really. Dr Michelle Peat is a research fellow in obstetrics and gynaecology at the Royal Women's Hospital, Mercy Hospital, and the University of Melbourne. Having come from a strong science research background with a focus on the impact of cancer on female fertility, she works across many projects, including developing fertility decision aids for young women with cancer and for women considering elective egg freezing. She's also developing an online fertility calculator for young women with breast cancer and a resource to manage common symptoms following cancer treatments for women, i.e. menopause. She's also involved in loads of other projects around fertility in many settings. So there'll be lots to talk about with uh, Michelle. Now, here's something listeners can do at home. Head onto the net and look up the term cheerful in your online dictionary. There you'll find a picture of Nurse EpiPen, my co-host for this morning. She's without doubt the most effervescent person I've ever had the privilege to work with. I really have EpiPen. I'm getting a bit teary now. So stick with me, Dr. Val and Nurse EpiPen, for a morning filled with fertility (laughs) and some some tunes as well. All in the next hour of Radiotherapy. Good morning, Nurse EpiPen. Good morning. It's great to be back in the studio, isn't it? It's great to have you back. Are you rusty? (laughs) I was was actually saying to you, I've been doing this for about over 20 20. years, 20 plus years, and it's the first time in a long time I've been a little bit nervous because I forgot what the panel looked like. (gasps) Like you walk in and it's like a 747 with lots of dials and knobs and levers and I'm thinking, which one do I push? Thankfully it worked out. I thought I might do a grad dip in panelling. Oh, you should do. Yeah. It's actually quite good fun because you've got total control. I can turn you up and turn you down, and you know, see, no one will know. Well, I used to operate resp- respirators in intensive care. Dial them up, dial them down. Bit of peep, bit of oxygen. Really, the yeah, the, the thing. Oh, it's high powered oh, well, in ICU. Be, that this, would be a peep walk in the park. This will be much easier than that, and nobody's life depends on this. Oh, correct. So, um, much much easier. Hey, talking about things medical. During the week, we had occasion to have a chat, and you said. Oh, I just spoke to a chap who had a dog. Correct. So, so fill I'm in the leaving story. a hospital in Melbourne, yeah. heading out to the car park, <clears throat> and this guy's walking along with his um, golden retriever, and it's got a, a, a little thing on his back and looks like a seeing eye dog or yeah. something professional. Yeah. And I said, Oh, you're coming in with your dog to the hospital. And he said, I'm on my way to intensive care. I'm thinking, oh, 
bugs patients. No. But it's not the patient section. He was going in to visit the relatives or the visitors and yeah. relatives who sit outside in the waiting room yeah. freaking out because their relatives mm. are in ICU. Mm. And he says that this is his job, his dog, and it's to alleviate anxiety and tension and just break yeah. the atmosphere in the waiting room. What a great idea. I mean, look, I've seen support dogs a fair bit, but actually bringing them to a highly stressful situation. I mean, as you say, relatives are going to be super anxious. And, you know, having just something there which is a bit distraction, which is cuddly, which gives you unconditional love, can just maybe lower it a bit? Maybe. Is there any research on this? Well, I kind of – because we like to evaluate Mm. programs – before they get funded or before they are allowed to happen, Mm. especially in the medical setting. So I thought, I'm going to go and Google and see what's around. Mm. So I did find – well, let's start with what an assistance dog can do. So I'm talking about outside this dog that went to ICU. I'm talking about dogs in general that can look after people and support them. Um, And they're called assistance dogs and they're trained for two years. Do you know some dogs can open and close doors, drawers – Fridges, I think I need one. (laughs) Um, They can retrieve dropped items. They can press buttons on the traffic lights. They can remove items of clothing to help people get ready for a shower. Uh, Pay the cashier at shops. No way. Alert with a bark if the owner is in danger. They pay the cashier, as in they take the cash or they've got the the phone and they they touch the thing. Credit card. Wow. So these are pretty special dogs and in general they assist with the development and movement of motor skills, provide greater freedom and independence for that person, reduce the need for a carer, probably a bit cheaper, improve self-esteem and confidence and give love and companionship. So, I mean, a lot of those things you were talking about before were the sort of physical things, the opening, the closing, the paying, the picking up. But this is something different, isn't it, in in a highly stressful situation when you've got lots of, I guess, lots of anxiety, lots of stress, lots of unknowns, lots of uncertainty, and you bring a a pet into that situation. Has there been any research done on that particular I couldn't find anything. I could find something on infection control. Oh, because that's your area, infection Well, but also dogs might be bringing in bugs. So I couldn't find anything that covered it. Um, But going back to some of the assistant dogs, so there are four people with physical disabilities, MS, autism. You've heard about horses with kids. Yep. So I did find a paper in 2020 in disability and rehabilitation. And it was a a review of many studies about the psychological effects and well-being for individuals with physical disabilities and chronic conditions. So the results indicate that service dogs... Um, was related to a better emotional feeling and function, work function, school. They're very useful and been evaluated in people with epilepsy, yeah. people with diabetes. They can prevent if somebody's looking a bit wonky and they might be having a hypo, they'll That's bark. That's fantastic. I know. It's, dogs are amazing. Mm. Anyway, there, were, um, there was a study of 22 people, not a big sample, of people with epilepsy that found that they had major uh, to moderate increases in their quality of life. And in, I mentioned that, the diabetic patients. Yeah. But some of the studies are a little bit hard to interpret yeah. and make conclusive and strong limit uh, recommendations. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because as a scientist, the four of us in this room, 
they're not doing randomised control trials. One has a dog, one doesn't have a dog. They're people at different ages, different um, disabilities. There's yeah. a lot of confounding, which means that the results are hard to interpret. Do you know, I've just written about this for, a, for just for a general magazine about science and trying to quantify the unquantifiable. And so, you know, there's this area of research called qualitative research, which doesn't do numbers and randomised control trials. It actually looks at at meaning within an experience. Mm -hmm. And I reckon this is the sort of stuff that would just yeah. lend itself really well to qualitative yeah. studies. Yeah. But, you know, here's a great research opportunity for a young researcher in the hospital to look at this particular issue because, I mean, what a great idea. I just I mean, When you told me this last week, I thought, wow, what a great idea. Why haven't we done this before? Was the, and the first and thing you and I are mind. both dog lovers. Yeah. How about our guests? Um, yes, oh. our guests aren't in the studio, remember, the allure oh, of radio? Oh, but no, but they're outside in they're the ether. They're outside in the ether. <laughs> and I'm just looking at them and <laughs> thinking, I'm vibing them. You're vibing And I guess. reckon they would have dogs. Hey, let me switch on to another topic which I, um, which I read about uh, in Nature. Um, you know, the journal Nature, that's the sort of yeah, big, journal. That's a big gun paper, that's journal. The, that's the big gun journal that kind of, it's kind of like, the, if you get a paper in Nature, you tell your grandkids about, about it because, or whoever, you tell Everybody about Lancet it. Lancet Nature. I, definitely Nature. Nature. I was thinking of starting up a, a rival um, journal called Nurture because you've got <gasps> you no know, Nature versus Nurture, and I could be like you know the opposing team. Nurture. Nurture. Nice. It's a nice kind of term. Anyway, so this was about I'm just, this was about um, new uh, vaccines for COVID diciannova, which is COVID nineteen in Italian, um, using. <laughs> Using sprays, sprays up your nose. Yeah, rather, yeah. Have you heard about this? Yeah, yeah. I'm in the field. I didn't know that. So did you know that um, there is a booster spray up your nose um, vaccine for COVID, uh, which has been licensed now in uh, China? And there are more than... Okay, I'm going to ask you this, smarty uh -oh. pants. How many, how many nasal vaccines for COVID-19 COVID are in development around the world? Is it more than 50 or less than 50? Oh, more than 50. Yeah, 100. There's 100 yeah. different projects looking yeah. at spraying uh, nasal sprays for COVID-19 vaccines. And these are called mucosal vaccines. And they're called mucosal vaccines because the cells lining um, orifices or um, tubes in your body, that's called mucosa. And if you spray stuff onto it, it can get absorbed into that mucosa and the body then has its reaction. <laughs> So what scientists are thinking is that because um, the, the, the virus, COVID, gets in through the mucosa and then infects you, if you can somehow get a, a first-line barrier of immunology there, then we can actually stop the, uh, the virus getting in so it doesn't get in, like, you know, that TV ad from... 30 years ago with a toothpaste. Yeah, the it brick wall. The yeah, brick it doesn't wall. get in. It just doesn't get in. So, Because at the moment now, our, our current intramuscular vaccines, they provide an immunological response in the bloodstream and then once the virus gets into the bloodstream, the, the uh, immunoglobulins go and eat up the virus. But the virus has already gotten in. So it'll help lessen, you know, the current vaccines help lessen the severity and they're fantastic and great. But if you could get a mucosal vaccine, that would stop the virus even getting in even at the start. So people are going um, really hard at looking for a mucosal vaccine. Now, there are some mucosal vaccines for other viruses around. Would you know which ones, Muddy Pants? <laughs> now that you've said, yeah, for sure. I think that I, I've been reading that um, they're trying to mix the COVID-19 with the annual influenza 
um, vaccine All as right, well. Because you can Mix do them yeah, together. Because you can do a, a, a mucosal um, influenza yes, vaccine. Yes. So no. Yeah. Uh, what else were you thinking of? Polio. Sulk Sabin. Oh, Remember, Sulk was the yes. first polio vaccine which was injected, mm-hmm. and then we now use Sabin, which is um. You just drink it, don't you? I remember. Oh, having. they've even changed that. Have they changed? We that? used to have that little pink liquid that's on the a pink teaspoon. Liquid. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. they've that's it's different now. So what do they do now? I can't remember. <laughs> no, because yeah, but it's <laughs> we were oral. talking about. I've gone. Yeah, but no, it's oral. It's oral. It's oral. It's not an injectable one. That's no, what we're talking no, about. No. Um, so, so the great thing about this is if you. If you give a mucosal vaccine, you get a different, and it works, of course, you get a different antibody response. So the antibodies in the blood are these ones called IgG and IgM. I'm not sure what they stand for, but the ones on the mucosa are called IgA. And if you can get an IgA response on the mucosa, bang, you've got your defences up, the virus actually doesn't even get a guernsey, doesn't even get a look in, gets, um, gets totally... Um, schmeist before it even gets a look into your bloodstream. So that's a really, really interesting development in coming up, I think, for uh, vac- vaccines. The problem is that testing, when they're testing it, what, they've been te- what they're looking for is um, placebo versus intranasal, um, intranasal vaccine. Agent, yeah. yeah. But they're trying to do it on people who have never had COVID and who aren't immunised and yeah. Those people are precious and far, far and few between. So that's going to be a difficulty uh, with these trials. But I reckon they reckon in about the next two years they'll be out of phase two studies, and uh, that we may actually be seeing that, which will just make it so much. I wonder if you have to freeze them still, because or keep them really cold. Oh yeah, that could be. That, that could if be how efficient. stable they are. Yeah, and that, how long they last. And how long for. they last exactly. Yeah, what's exactly, the immune exactly. response? But thanks for that little cheat on IgM, <laughs> IgA, and did IgG. You, did you like that? I really. You've excelled. I have excelled. I had to go back to my medical school books and look up what all those things were again. All those IgG things. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. We are blessed in the studio this morning with Associate Professor Kirsten Palmer. And I bagged interview to get to interview her because she's – well, we'll share, Mal. We'll share some of the questions because you can never keep quiet. You've always got a question. That's so not true. <laughs> so, um, Dr Kirsten, or Associate Professor Kirsten, tell us about yourself. Where, where have you come from? What have you done? How did you get into fetal without an O medicine? It's got an O. No, not on her website. Well, okay. Okay. No O. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you? Well, I haven't, I haven't come far. I'm, you know, kind of Melbourne raised and I've lived all my life here in Melbourne. Um, and I started off in science and, uh, you oh. know, did a science degree straight out of school, had no idea what I wanted to do. Was lucky to get an amazing opportunity working at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute in Melbourne and, and worked there for about seven years in science. Um, and that's where I just developed my passion for, for research and, and uh, trying to look at discovering new things. But also realised I'm a little bit of a, a gas bag and I love talking to people and where better to do that than by doing medicine and getting a chance to go and talk to people for a job. So I went back and did a medical degree. Uh, didn't really know what I wanted to do but loved women's health as a medical student. 
and thought, mm, I'll just give it a go as a doctor and see, you know, is it good on the other side? And never looked back and uh, just fell in love with, with women's health. And then over the years of doing that and coming across women that were having really challenging pregnancy experiences and the difficulties that they faced and being able to try and support them through that and achieve better outcomes for them and their babies was just something that I've just gravitated towards and, and never stepped back from. And, and when you talk about difficult pregnancies, what does any, anything in particular come to mind? Are there more conditions than others? Yeah, so there are there are now increasingly a number of women that are having medical conditions that are impacted by their pregnancy or impact on their pregnancy, and and one that I guess comes to mind is cystic fibrosis. You know, these are these are children that previously didn't necessarily survive to reproductive age, and thankfully, due to medical advances, we now see many people living well into their reproductive lives and understandably choosing to have children of their own. But that comes with challenges during their pregnancy. So very lucky to do a lot of work around, you know, pregnancy care with women that have cystic fibrosis, likewise heart disease, malignancy, uh, other medical conditions, you know, autoimmune conditions. Um, All of these things are the various challenges in pregnancy and it's a really exciting space to work in. But also, whilst we all enter pregnancy expecting to have a a healthy baby, that's unfortunately not always the case. Uh, And we find that there are babies that have difficulties and challenges that they are also facing during fetal life. And being able to to care for families and care for those babies to try and, you know, maximise whatever time they might have together and the quality of that time um, is another really special space to be in. And where are we up to with picking up abnormalities with the babies and thinking about doing operations in utero? Yeah, so that's certainly a really evolving and developing space as well. And, uh, you know, mainly that is happening overseas to some extent and we're a little bit of a, a tyranny of our smaller population and distance. But there is some really amazing work that's happening in that space. So for us here in Melbourne, uh, we do do in utero procedures, particularly for twin pregnancies and twins that share a placenta and and through doing that sometimes share blood supply with each other. Uh, So we do do a procedure at at Monash Medical Centre as part of a Victorian network uh, that helps to separate those those blood supplies using laser in utero Um, and that that does an amazing job of actually being able to give both of these babies the best chance of surviving healthily through their pregnancies for a condition that otherwise would be universally fatal. Mm. So you separate the placentas, so they've got two joined together? So they've got one placenta um, that two babies share um, and they're sharing blood vessels through that placenta one with another and then using laser essentially you do, you just kind of divide the placenta in half so they now have their two separate placentas and two separate circulations. Wow. So uh, one of the things that I um, love about what area of health you're in is I was listening to Ewan Wallace, the dear gorgeous Scottish professor of everything, and he calls himself a placentologist. And I said, come on to the radio, come on to Triple R because we'd love you and listen to your Scottish accent. Mm. And he said, look, I've got other things, but ask Kirsten to come on. So I am fascinated by the placenta and I put an ad up on my, on the Instagram for Triple R, this show this morning, about what a powerhouse the placenta is. Do you want, Can you talk a bit about the placenta? 
us. I, I agree. I think the placenta is an incredibly underrated uh, <laughs> organ, so you've come to the right place. But, you know, it's, it's this amazing organ that develops at the very start of the pregnancy. It comes from the same fertilised egg as the, the fetus, the baby, um, and it, it's, in a, it's able to invade actually into the mother's body. Um, there's very few things that our bodies will let invade into it, and the placenta is, is one of those. Um, and it's able to form this amazing connection between the mother and the baby um, to enable that baby to, to grow and to develop. And it has a huge influence on how that baby grows and develops. And we're increasingly starting to understand that that's not just during our fetal life, but it actually sets us up for the rest of our lives as well in terms of our future health. Um, and then it's got its own lifespan to it. Um, we're not quite sure yet on how to work out what the lifespan of the placenta always is. Um, but obviously at the, the end of the pregnancy as well, it's no longer needed and hopefully should do the right thing with uh, exiting as well at the time of birth and, and not hanging around and causing problems for the mother. And why do they attach to different parts in the uterus why like the placenta previa where it's across the cervix why how does that happen it, it's honestly just around where that fertilized egg has implanted into the uterus um, and it's just developed from that point so you know if that fertilized egg implants in that lower part of the uterus well that's where you'll end up then with the challenges that you've just mentioned in terms of that low-lying placenta mm. do you know we were watching a movie last night um and in the movie, uh, a, a non-doctor has to de- deliver a baby and uh, he delivers the baby and the baby's fine and everything. And I was thinking, and I actually said to my wife, he hasn't delivered the placenta. Like, come on. Like, you don't just deliver yes. a baby and that's yes. it. You've got to, you know, you've got to cut the cord. You've got yeah. to deliver the placenta. It's not yeah. all over Red Rover. You know, you've got to do stuff. So it is an under-recognised and under-appreciated uh, organ, which is an interesting way of thinking about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know I've heard some fathers say... Um, we're going to deliver the placenta. He goes, oh, is there another child coming? <laughs> Called placenta. <laughs> <laughs> placenta. Um, something that's piqued my interest during the week, which I'm sure you've been asked about, is uterus or uterine transplantation. Have you got any thoughts about that? Look, I, I think it's amazing what they're achieving on that front and I think, you know, giving giving women the opportunity to be able to, to carry and bear their own children um, is an amazing gift. Uh, I, you know, it's exciting to see that it sounds like here in Australia that will be happening for the first time next year yep. uh, up in Sydney. Uh, so it will be wonderful to, to see the outcomes of that and how it works. Obviously, it's still, you know... A, a relatively evolving field. I think the first was done back in 2012. Um, so it's only been around for 10 years and, and lots of challenges to overcome. But I, I think it's a very exciting space. And um, has a, a, um, a transplanted uterus um, had a full-term pregnancy? Yes. yes. Oh, right. Yes. Really? 40 live births globally. Through a transplanted uterus. Through a transplanted uterus. And when you've finished your um, having your children, if I don't know how many babies, it's usually just one baby that they can, yeah, yeah. then you have your uterus taken away. You have a um, hysterectomy. Hysterectomy. Wow. Because you don't need it. So, so do you not need um, um, anti-rejection drugs when you have... You do, you do. And yeah. that's why they then remove the uterus after ah, they've finished completing right. their family because those mothers are on those anti-rejection drugs while the uterus is in place. 
Wow, that's just fascinating. So, uh, do you know the figures? Have you got the epidemiology of people with uterine fertility issues? So, um, I mean, certainly in terms of the figures of people with uterine issues, it's around one in 500. So it's not an uncommon issue. Uh, so there's quite a lot of women in that position. Um, in terms of the actual uterine transplants and how they've worked, in terms of the figures, it's challenging because a lot of those cases are more reported in the media rather than in our <laughs> peer-reviewed medical journals. Mm. Um, and so being able to get all of that information to be able to tease mm. apart, you know, as you were mentioning, mm. you know, the nuances and confounding factors and the success. Um, but it certainly looks like it's um, it's quite successful. What's When you say uterine causes of infertility is that things like fibroids or what, what sort of things cause that yeah so it's it can be a range of things so yeah. it can be there are conditions where women are born without a uterus oh, and really? so they may not yeah. have a uterus there may have been things that have happened in their lifetimes that have led to them losing a uterus and that oh, might right. be because of previous pregnancy complications right. where they've needed up needed to have a hysterectomy it could be complications with fibroid surgery yeah. where they've needed to have a hysterectomy yeah. um and so it's it's mainly those those groups of women um right. that it would really benefit from this and multiple births so would they come in under the high risk group for maybe more than twins but are you looking after um women with multiple births What's the greatest number of babies you've looked after <laughs> in Utah? The, the greatest number that I've personally looked after is um, quads. Um, wow. I haven't had greater than that, um, but I certainly know of colleagues that have had pregnancies with uh, wow. with more babies in utero than that. And non IVF, they're naturally conceived quads, or uh, the quads were naturally conceived. Yes. Wow. And what are some of the issues for women who are? I guess, bearing four babies in the uterus, which is kind of designed for one, I imagine. Yeah, so absolutely. So the biggest issue is premature birth, really, because, you know, the uterus... One of the things that help we think helps time when we go into labour is the kind of stretch and size on the uterus as well. And so when you're carrying so many babies, obviously at much earlier stage in the pregnancy, that uterus is going to be consistent with a full-term uterus with a single baby. So they're at a really high risk of having their babies born early um, and unfortunately then all of the challenges mm-hmm. and the problems that go with that with extreme prematurity um, for babies. Can you use some interventions to stop premature birth? Because then you've got to balance it against the uterus getting too big and yeah. the complications of that, I imagine. Yeah. So how, how do you, I mean, in a nutshell, so how do you balance <laughs> that? Look, it actually starts right back at the very early stages of the pregnancy with having some difficult conversations around yeah. just how challenging uh, yeah. a pregnancy with, with four babies in utero mm. actually is and, you know, the options that exist for mm. families in that circumstance. Do they want to continue with the pregnancy mm. with four babies in the mm. uterus or maybe with a, a reduced number mm. of babies mm. in the uterus to reduce the risk mm. um, of having that really mm. premature birth and, and maximising the chance of having a healthy baby mm-hmm. um, and then for families regardless supporting them whatever decision they might make on that front and if it's going ahead with four babies then um, then keeping a very close eye on them it's not just four babies it's still thinking about what combination are they do they all have their own separate placentas or do they mm-hmm. still share a placenta and have some of these other issues mm-hmm. and challenges that they might face along the way mm-hmm. yeah, multiple births mm-hmm. tricky um I'm interested. Uh, can I just take you back a bit? I mean, EpiPen is interested in the 
in your day-to-day job. So am I, if you're interested. But I'm more so interested in how you chose obstetrics because I found obstetrics really interesting too as a medical student. I, I just... I could never figure out how a baby made its way out of that pelvic canal. You know, I was, I was with the dolls and the and the and the and the, the pelvic bones, trying to figure out how it all worked, and it just seemed miraculous to me. One of the things though that turned me off obstetrics was the hours. I mean, how do you deal with the hours? Do you not need sleep? <laughs> oh, I am definitely somebody that needs sleep. Um, yeah. I was definitely an eight-hour-a-night yeah. person. Honestly, I think the best training for becoming an obstetrician was having kids of my <laughs> own and the profound sleep deprivation that yeah. comes with being a new parent yeah. and yeah. Um, discovering actually what you can achieve on very little sleep as a new parent. Um, and I think that's made a world of difference. Did you have children before you decided obstetrics or the other way around? No, I had started, but yeah. I was still during my training and thankfully early in my training before I knew too much, which was actually, (laughs) I think, the good way of doing it. You don't want to know too much. No. (laughs) Um, I think I've read that you're doing quite a bit of research. Is that bench research, lab scientific? It's a combination in all honesty. So it is challenging with the unpredictability of obstetrics to keep doing laboratory research, Um, but I am lucky to work with an amazing team of people that that get to actually be in the lab doing the lab research and then I just get to live vicariously through them looking at their, their, their results and their data. Um, and so then it's also a combination of, of a lot of clinical research and clinical trials research. So what's new? So what's new? Um, we're doing a lot of really exciting things because, you know, not much changes in obstetrics. So the way that we deliver care hasn't changed overly in decades and we don't get many new advances into how to advance, uh, how to actually improve things um, because people are a bit nervous about doing research in obstetrics and people might remember the challenges with thalidomide back in the 1960s mm. and that's really put a, a big kibosh on you know, drug research, particularly in pregnancy. So we're doing some really exciting, you know, clinical trials and research at the moment about trying to look at advancing a range of different products to provide new therapies um, for complications of of pregnancy Um, and being, you know, a fan of the placenta, really looking (laughs) at, you know, medications that might help to treat placental disorders. Um, So when the placenta hasn't developed properly, uh, it causes the baby to be small or it releases a whole bunch of stuff into the mother's bloodstream that makes her really unwell with things like preeclampsia. Um, so looking at some new new therapies, hopefully, that might change the future of management in those spaces. Do you know, a word just popped into my head that hasn't been there for like 35 years, cotyledon. Is that the yes. placenta has little cotyledons? It does. Oh! Oh, get out of town! No, they do. They put What's these a cotty lead on? Isn't it the little little bump that goes in that goes into the uterus yeah. wall? Yeah. So the placenta is the thing as a whole, but yeah, it's made up of multiple cotyledons, which are the you know you've got the the umbilical cord coming in and spreading out into these multiple little cotyledons, which are kind of like little lung lobes in a way oh. that help with the nutrient and gas exchange for the fetus. It's amazing. How amazing. These words just... Hey, um, the placenta. Uh, I've got a newfound respect for the placenta. Nice. And we're going to talk more. More fertility stuff. I know you always oh, want to talk one, more. No, just one. Just come on. Tips for women that are pregnant. Oh, good point. And, yeah, come on. Good point. Tips for women that are trying to conceive or, you know, um, thinking about IVF or whatever they can't conceive. Where do they go? Who do they talk to? 
Yeah, so, you know, if you're thinking about having a baby or having some challenges having a baby, best place to go is to go and see your GP um, and go and get a, a pre-pregnancy visit, a general health checkup, you know, make sure that your blood pressure's okay and that everything else is looking good um, and look at starting on a folate supplement just so that you're as prepared as possible. Lovely. See, I needed that tip. No, you did need that tip. And that um, wasn't that an Australian kind of thing, uh, Fiona... No, the Stanley. Late, Stephen Stanley, the folate thing, was that her? No. Yes, was yes it, it was. What, what, yes, I'm from WA. WA, folate, yep. folate, folate. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. So we've had a fact Check, checker come in yeah. and the um the oral polio vaccine was dropped many years ago because <laughs> of the side effects oh right so now it's injectable in australia. now it's injectable oh, in australia okay. and oral led rarely to paralysis as attenuated live vaccine oh, virus right. so now so we're going with injectable injectable so you and i yes because we're a little bit older we're old. got the pink stuff which yeah. was quite and my tasty. kids did too all oh, right so now it's injectable. Okay. Thanks okay. for the f- fact. Thanks. Thank you for that f- fact, f- fact check. check. Okay. Over to me and over to Dr. Michelle Pete. So, um, Michelle, another fantastic story about your experience and expertise. Take it away. Take it away. Uh, so I started as a basic scientist. Um, really, my interest at the time was to become like a genetic engineer, which wasn't a thing at the time. So I uh, majored in genetics and then from there realised that what I was really interested in is actually reproductive health and inheritance rather than necessarily, you know, playing with genes in a lab. Um, I did a master's in that, and which then led to my PhD. And that's when I think I really found my niche, which was a psychosocial research. So really trying to understand the impact of illness on people, um, my fascinations with the reproductive system, so specifically the impact of illness like cancer and how it affects people's ability to reproduce and also all the changes in the hormones and how that affects the body as well. Ultimately, my goal really is to do research that improves the lived experiences of women, so improving quality of life, hoping that they, you know, helping them struggle, their struggle, um, lessen their struggle just a little bit. And that's what I've been doing for the last, well, 15 years or so now. <gasps> Oh, a long time. So where do your patients come from? How do you meet them? So most of our patients um, come through the hospital. So most of my research is collaborative. I, you know, have studies that can span over 20 hospitals around Australia. And um, we can, you know, we connect with res- with our patients through the clinics there. Um, my more recent research has also been looking at women in the community. So we've been looking at women who, you know, are seeking um, advice around elective egg freezing, for example. And we've had a recent study that looks at women with endometriosis. And so we've connected with those patients through uh, social media organisations like Endoactive, um, where you've, they've got a big network of women who are going through the issues associated mm. with those illnesses. Mm. So you touched on egg freezing or oocyte cryopreservation. <laughs> Tell us about that and how women come to those choices. So um, in 2012, elective egg freezing or oocyte cryopreservation or planned, um, planned oocyte cryopreservation, <laughs> lots of different words for it, mm. um, was no longer deemed experimental, which basically meant that women could go to IVF clinics and freeze their eggs. Um, this was an option that was actually essentially developed 
for cancer patients initially. Um, the reason was, you know, in countries where there's a, a religious um, underpinning or religious cultural, you know, drive, embryo freezing wasn't really an option. So those countries really drove elective egg freezing. And so once it got to a point that it was easily accessible, good success rates, um, it started being pumped out. And so what that meant, though, is that other people could use it. And so for elective egg freezing, what we typically see are women who, for whatever reason, um, mostly because they don't have a partner at the time they want to have a child, can go and freeze eggs to give them a bit of extra time to then achieve those goals, whether it's having a partner or being in a better financial situation to afford being a single parent. Um, so, yeah, so we've been doing some work in that because it's a difficult decision. There's obviously costs associated with it. Mm. There are risks. A lot of my work is around making sure people make informed decisions and um, so not being pressured by anything mm. um, other than their own beliefs and what's important to them and um, following them through and trying to make sure that they're supported in that process right up to the end when they have to make decisions about what to do with those eggs. So um, you obviously work a lot in the cancer domain. Yep. And so women that come to you would be considering oocyte um, freezing, did you call it? Sorry. Yeah, I, I tend to call it egg freezing just for e egg ease. Fre yeah. <laughs> egg freezing because of cancer and cancer treatment issues. Um, generally... What would be the breakdown, do you think, of, of people coming for egg freezing? Would it mostly be cancer treatment? Would it mostly be just um, delaying um, pregnancy for a variety of psychosocial reasons? Or Well, with recent numbers, yeah. certainly um, a lot more elective egg freezers. Elective egg, right. Yeah, so, you know, the, cancer, the number of cancer patients who are likely to want some sort of fertility mm -hmm. preservation is relatively constant. I mean, obviously, cancer diagnosis does increase each yeah. year, but... You know, and the, what we're really looking at is young people with cancer. Yeah. So if you're under age 40 and you're diagnosed with a cancer, that, and not all cancer treatment affects fertility, so oh, okay. it's only the ones that do, then you might choose to preserve. Yeah. Um, but what <clears throat> we have seen with the elective procedure is that's just been escalating. I think right. in the last six years or something, we've seen like almost over a 200, 300% increase in wow. uptake of egg freezing, elective wow. egg freezing. Right. And, the, and I was reading that's non-Medicare non um, rebate. Yeah. So they're choosing that. And do you talk about costs? Um, yes, I think that's a really important part. Mm. Uh, we develop resources for women who are making this de these decisions. Mm. And we certainly, whether it's in cancer or not, which is there are Medicare rebates for cancer, uh, we definitely talk about cost because that can be a deciding factor. Mm, definitely. You know, sure. we've had participants say things to, you know, to us like, you know, if I'm paying $10,000 a cycle, that's one cycle, I might need three cycles, that's $30,000. That could be a holiday, that could be a house deposit. Mm. So it's sort of making, you know, you have to choose between your lifestyle choices or your life decisions really and whether this is something that's worth it. So when someone freezes their eggs, I mean, there would be a cost involved in that. And then just to keep them frozen, that's like you've got to make, you've got to pay that cost as well. And then when you go through a cycle, you've got that. So as you say, that the numbers do add up to be yeah, quite significant. Yeah, so there's obviously the initial <clears throat> cycle, as you said. Mm. Um, you know, there are certain clinics that offer lower cost cycles, mm. but still, you know, you'd be looking at being out of pocket at least $5,000, if not ten. Yeah. Um as a woman gets a bit older, she might need more cycles. So you right. need a certain number of eggs at particular ages to give you a good chance. When I say good chance, 80% chance of having a baby later. Yeah. 
So for someone who's 35, say the recommendation mm. is 15 eggs, mm. um, you may or may not get that in your first cycle. And when you get older, it's more. So when you need to um, also explain that the woman has to have um, treatment to develop the oocytes. Yeah. So she's getting a, a um, stimulating hormones and drugs. Mm-hmm. So that in itself has got risks. Yes. And um, so she has to have them and then they collect a mul- multiple numbers of eggs. Mm-hmm. And then, so it's not just whipping in there and grabbing no. a couple that are sitting there. It's She has to undergo quite extensive treatment and that's also the same with sisters giving eggs to their other sisters. and she, Yeah, so it's it sounds like an easy process but... How do you break it down for somebody that comes for counselling mm. about how to do mm. this? So, you know, the the basic thing is to cover, you know, everything you can, make sure people make informed choices. So we do start by saying, uh, talking about the process itself. As you said, Epi, the talking about the hormones you have to take, mm. the potential side effects. Um, the risk of really severe side effects is quite low, but if you get hyperstimulated, for example, you can end up in hospital. Sure. So we have to be really upfront about those sorts of things. Um, we have to also be upfront that you can go through all of this and still not end up with a baby at the end because mm. there's no guarantees. Mm. Uh, we talk about both the physical impacts and the psychological impacts. Mm. So the patients that we um, deal with and talk to often describe it like a roller coaster of emotions as they freeze mm. their eggs. You know, they there's, I think, a bit of shame mm. tied into it. Uh, women have said to me things like, I sit there in the IVF clinic and I look around and I go, how did I get here? Mm. Why am I here by myself doing this now? And so it's this sort of the emotional journey seems to be sometimes more difficult actually than the physical journey for a lot of our participants and patients. So, uh, yeah, that was one of my questions. So how do you help somebody that says that? Why me? Why am I sitting in here? All my best friends have had, you know, multiple babies. How do you help a woman deal with that question, why me? And that's a really tricky one. Um, And I think all we have to do, all we can really do is acknowledge how they're feeling. Um, Explain to them there's actually, what we're seeing is more and more women in that situation. So we're actually seeing a um, larger proportion of women who get to their 40s and haven't had children um, across, you know, Australia. And sort of just validate that and just say this is unfortunately the way life sometimes just works out this way and it's 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 not ideal. But, you know, at least now there are options like freezing eggs, mm. um, whereas 20 years ago women didn't have that. Um, and the other thing to acknowledge also is that a lot of women um, end up, you know, they, they may freeze eggs but don't most women don't use them and that they can still have really fulfilling and rich lives without having a child. You were, we were talking during the break, uh, you were talking, Michelle, about the pressure that uh, is so intrinsic uh, in society for women to have children and that, I mean, that must come up in the conversations that you have you know, with fertility. How do, you, how do you disentangle that? It's so complex, you know. It is really complex. I think the first step is really, again, validating that. So, you know, we'll say to women, we understand that there's a lot of pressure. They will tell us things that there's pressure from family. Certain cultural groups have more pressure than others. Um, And there's just a lot of, even just like on media, in media and everything you see around you presents, you know, women in a certain way, Mm. even conversations. Uh, I had one participant say to me, you know, the first question people always ask me is, do I have children? Mm. And that kind of sent her through a sort of traumatic spiral of, Mm. I have to defend my place for not having children. Mm. 
And, you know, I would I said to her, it's really common. 70, you know, 75% of women in your position probably do. So p- these people are coming from a place of no ill intent. Mm. Um, but it is hard because it's like a constant reminder. I've, I've often felt very self-conscious when I'm asking people I don't know, like, do you have kids? Because mm. I want to share some sort of anecdote. Is, do you have any advice for me for how to – is there a better way of asking that question? I, I don't know. Um. I would probably not just – you can talk about your children without necessarily asking if someone yeah. has children and they can volunteer their own stories. Yeah. I think parents are very good at volunteering That's stories. so true. Yes. That's yes. so true. If they've got children, they'll yes. tell you. Yeah. And, yes. and, and what about empowering the woman that's asked that question? What words do you give them to say? I would normally say it's fine to say, look, I don't have children and just leave it at that. Mm. And yep. not, not, you don't need to explain yourself to anyone mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, and just go, no, and then change the topic or say, oh, do you have children and – let people talk about their kids. Yes. So, so I was working in and uh, doing some research in IVF clinics in Melbourne and I was heavily pregnant and I just felt awful about mm. going in there mm. while these women are trying to get pregnant and someone said to me, the minute these women leave the door, they're going to see 10,000 pregnant women. I mean, you all, we're all, they're all on our scanning you know, it's sensitivity. So mm. whether it's in the workplace or not, but mm. yeah, it's terribly, it's such a sensitive area. That's a really good piece of advice though, that people will volunteer if they've got kids. I'm going to use that. It's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. So you have learn, you got, you learn so, things. So have you got anything to volunteer today? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Do I? <laughs> and what about your decision aid? Is there, is that, I saw that you've written a paper about that. Yes. So um, for both, you know, the cancer groups, I've got a couple of decision aids for cancer, women with breast cancer, women with endometrial cancer, and also for parents of children with cancer. And then we've got one that we've done for this elective egg freezing. So decision aids are tools that are designed to help with making um, values-driven decisions. So basically where we have decisions where there's no right or wrong answer. So whether you freeze eggs or not, you know, it's up to you. So your decision is really driven by your personal values. That's what they're designed to help. Mm. Um, they include all the information about the pros and cons of a decision and they have this thing called a values clarification exercise where they ask you as an individual to go through each pro and con and go how important it is to me. And then based on that, you come to a thing, oh, am I leaning towards it or not? And then you talk to your health professional about it mm. and that's the idea. But the good thing about them is we make sure it's evidence-based, it covers all the key points that someone needs to consider in making that decision. And um, in studies, we've, the study on our elective egg freezing decision, we're just analysing the data now. So come back to me and I'll tell you <laughs> if that works. But certainly in the cancer space, we've shown that people who receive the decision aid compared to usual care have much better outcomes in terms of decision regret, um, how quickly they make the decision, um, how uncertain they are. It just makes the experience better. And that's what they tell us. I mean, you know. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, also, I imagine you've you've got all those really good questions to ask people about. You know, how much, how important is this to you? A lot across certain items, but I think just creating a, a space where people have got time mm-hmm. and opportunity and, and focus to think about these issues because there are so many demands, competing demands in daily life, mm. and as you say, so many. Um, forces pushing you or pulling you one way or the other, just to have that space for yourself to, to think about. That's terrific. Yeah, clinicians will say to me, you know, what's the? how do I raise this? Like this yeah. is a difficult topic. And I go, basic psycholo- psychology question, mm. ask permission. Yeah. Do, can I, do, would you like me to talk about this? And that creates exactly what you're saying now, the space. Um, I think one of the biggest take-homes I've ever gotten was a woman who received my uh, breast cancer decision aid came to me afterwards, um, we were at an event, and she said to me, 
you know, the thing that I liked best about it was it made me feel okay not to do anything, mm. which I thought was really Imagine interesting. very powerful. Mm. Mm. You are listening to Radio Therapy in the closing minutes of our show with... Uh, who Me? are you? Nurse, Me. <laughs> Nurse Me. Dr. Malpractice, Associate Professor Kirsten Palmer and Dr. Michelle Pete talking and Michelle is telling us about her fascinating research and clinical applications of decision aids. Michelle, in the, the last sort of three, four minutes of the show, I mean, I've just, uh, I looked at your online um, presence and you, you, you're doing so many other things. Tell us about some of the other work that you're doing. Uh, so my newest project, which is really exciting and it was funded by the Cancer Council, is to develop a platform that helps manage menopause after cancer. So uh, one of the longest and wide-ranging side effects of cancer treatment is menopause. And, you know, these are women, we know from our own research that these are women that often suffer and suffer in silence. Mm. So what we're trying to do is create this online platform that anyone around Australia can use and hopefully help them manage their symptoms better so they don't just have to just suck it up and deal with it. Mm. Um, And then, again, improving their quality of life. So people, uh, women would get uh, early menopause after cancer treatment because the treatment might actually affect the ovaries and therefore the ovaries stop producing hormones and then the person goes into menopause. Yeah. Briefly, um, can you tell us some of those tips and, and bits of advice that you give on the... Cool. Yeah. Um, so one of the, the really exciting things about this is we're trying to look at menopause symptoms sort of as this thing you can triage. So one of the big things is we look at how much those symptoms interfere with women's lives. And then if it's mild, you know, some of the best treatment actually is um, cognitive behaviour therapy, mm-hmm. believe it or not. And then if it's moderate, we'd manage it with a GP. And then if it's extreme, we'd recommend going to see a specialist mm-hmm. um, at a menopause um, clinic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got something. Yeah. I've got a hot, hot tip because, you know, your hot tip. it's always left to me to, you know, pick up the people that this these t- conversations might be upsetting. Yes. Yep. So I, di- I looked at the um, Cancer Council, so that's just funded you for your project, and there is um, the Fertility and Cancer Council has a support line and lots of information. So how, do, about, people, how do people find that? Well, you Google it. What was it again? The Fertility and um, understanding at the Cancer Council. Cancer Council. Yeah, Cancer Council. And I've got a phone number. Yeah. 13-1120. But as the lovely Kirsten did say, don't forget your GP. GP. Do you know, I get asked this all the time. You know, Mal, if somebody's got X, if somebody's got Y, what do you reckon? I reckon, see your GP. And I know it sounds like the the repeated answer that we give all the time, but it's just because it's so important. Your GP knows you, follows you through all your life events, or hopefully if you've got a GP that that you're seeing a lot of. Um, And they know the resources in the area. So it's, it's, it's desperately important. We could talk for hours and hours. Look how disappointed you are, Where did are, the time nurse. go? <laughs> Just the look of disappointment on your I face. I want more. I want more. You have been listening to uh, to Radiotherapy with, like, some fantastic discussions with our fantastic guests. We've got to get them back on the show. I say that every time because they're so good. Uh, Associate Professor Kirsten Palmer from Monash Medical Centre and Monash University. Dr Michelle Pate from the Women's. The and Melbourne, and University. Melbourne University. Mercy, Mercy, Mercy Women's. Is that right? And no, Mel- the Women's Hospital in Parkville Women's and um, Melbourne University. Melbourne University. Sorry about that. And um, Nurse EpiPen and me, Dr. Mel Practice. We will see you next Sunday morning. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.